Welcome to Movie Left, a movie review podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Monterulo, uh, joined here by my co-host, Comrade Dracula. Comrade, what's going on? What it is, what it is, coming to you from Chicago, where it is currently exactly 88 degrees out. I feel like that's very <laughs> fitting for this film. Um, and consequently, I have a fan, a box fan, right next to me, blasting me, so I don't know if you can hear it. But yeah, it's going to be on me for for the duration of this recording. Well, only when you so turned hot. it towards the microphone or whatever you just did. Yeah. Now I did a little, uh, hey, what do you want to say, fan? <laughs> uh, so yeah, we're going to do Back to the Future. This one, we didn't know if we'd actually reviewed this before because we've referenced about it, it multiple so times many on times. <laughs> yeah, on, on other movie left reviews we do. A lot of these these are you know retro reviews we we can't help but uh, reference it because it is such a seminal classic of the 80s and uh, you know holds up so well uh, we were talking about uh, terminator 2 also holds up very well despite being 30 years old this is 35 years old back to the future this week i believe was released in 1985 in the summer and one of the things also that you know helps it hold up is just you know the 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 clothes they're wearing have gone out of style and come back into style and gone out of style again and now they're back in like it's just it's it, it is so cyclical with fashion and, and style and aesthetic, um, you know. And they also just really made a perfect film, you know, from the writing to the editing to the recasting <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. and reshoots and everything. You know, there's, there's no part of this that doesn't stand the test of time, which is fitting because it is a movie that is so uh, much about time and traveling through time uh, and fucking up time and trying to fix time. <laughs> so. Yeah, well, I mean, it. so, you know... It, it's funny because the movie is so like tied to a very specific two time periods, but it is timeless in the sense that it th- just the iconography from this movie is so pervasive in culture and pop culture today that um, it, it it's kind of incredible. And I think that actually leads to, you know, that, that, that that's a, you know, big reason why this movie is so timeless. It's just because there's so many things like, you know, you think about, the DeLorean of, you know, for example, like, of course, the iconic uh, time machine from the movie, the DeLorean was a car that, you know, the company only produced one uh, model of car ever, the, the, the DMC-12, the DeLorean that we see in the film, uh, and went bankrupt. Uh, and that car only, I think, was sold for, for a year, or like, I think it was only the 1983 model it was just, that came it out. It was just the one car. They only just the one, one car. Yeah. yeah. One, it's just know, one just one and for the movie. That was it. Yet it's still such an. It might be the most single iconic car because you know, out outside of like car, you know, car nuts, car heads, whatever. Like that's a car that's instantly recognizable and instantly cool to anybody, even like non-car people, people that aren't you know super into cars. Oh, um, you, you, if you see one just driving down the street, like you're going to take a picture of it. Yo, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because <laughs> so... I, I always say like if I become somehow like a like a multi million dollar screenwriter or something, I'm just gonna buy a fucking DeLorean. I don't care that it's a death trap. I don't care that they suck and that they constantly break down and that they don't have good turning like the radius. Doors like, don't work. The doors like, don't. They're, they're, I, I don't they're total lemons, how, but yeah, like the thing with the doors, like they kept not opening all the way, so you notice throughout the film. <laughs> They're constantly hitting their head on the doors when they open because they didn't go up all the way like they were supposed to, and it's also a really it's a pretty small car. Like Michael J. Fox was cramped, and he's only four foot, uh, I'm sorry, five foot four and a half inches tall. So oh, wow. I don't know so how they got Christopher Lloyd in that car who's six foot one. Right, he's almost but, never in it. I mean, he he's in it 
at the beginning, but he's leaning out of it. Like he's right. I don't even know if he's we ever seen well, him they, in it. They they probably had to strip out all of the uh you know, sort of the the, the sci fi <laughs> prosthetics to yeah. fit him in there. Um, but you notice, like, they, they even kind of, like, make the, the crampness part of the story because, you know, when Marty's being chased by the Libyans and he jams it into high gear, that's when he accidentally turns on the time circuits. So it's almost like they're, they're, you know, <laughs> there's not enough room to make the car function without accidentally turning on the, time, the fucking flux capacitor. Well, <laughs> and they even so. play into the fact that it's a piece of shit at the end where it just won't start. I mean, it's a brand new car. Repeatedly. And it repeatedly. just dies. Yeah, d- repeatedly just dies on him, including at the climactic, you know, final uh, moments with the clock tower. It's just... <laughs> I, I, I appreciate that they played into that the the fact that it is kind of a piece of shit and it's kind of oh, yeah. Well, I don't know if you know, but uh, the the original version of the script was basically uh, the 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 ending of the movie um, was the beginning of Indiana Jones and the Curse of the Crystal Skull. Uh, yeah, origi- yeah, yeah, yeah. Originally, it was like the time machine was going to be a refrigerator, and <laughs> apparently they were like, "That's stupid." And then Spielberg was like, "Yeah, but I still want to do the lead refrigerator some point, you know, nuclear, <laughs> nuclear something involved, you know." Well, involved. yeah, that was the other thing. He they they decided to to go to a nuclear testing site to get to generate the energy needed to send it back in time. Then they realized it would right. be too. Um, it's it was just it was bad. It was bad. And, but you can well, see how I, I think it was like, a budget you know, thing, but it ends up working so much better the way they did it. Right, you know? but it's you know that you, you see the progression of a of a you know how a a good script doesn't usually start with a good idea it starts with like you know what if we did this and then this a like, good premise you know. and a bunch of shitty execution exactly and, and, and then they said mean. that you know they chose the delorean purely because they wanted a car that could look like a spaceship for the gag you know with the peabody farm <laughs> uh-huh. but i don't believe that that's the only reason because they wanted something that was going to stand out and they also i mean from for even from the initial like test run with einstein in there and it's being remote controlled you know he's got it you know in 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 park but he's peeling out the back tires revving up to 66 miles an hour before he cuts it loose like mm-hmm. they try to make that fucking car look as cool as fucking possible oh yeah right they knew what they were doing like even though they they you know they it, it breaks down the look of it uh you know and just appealing to to people that are fucking gearheads that was always intentional it wasn't just oh we need a car that's going to look like a flying saucer to people in the 50s Right, so I, I I I don't believe that that was the only reason why they picked that car. No, for sure, and 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 it it does have an iconic look, and you know, DeLorean. The reason the DeLorean was kind of a piece of shit is because John DeLorean, um, you know, really interesting character. By the way, I think he needs his own, uh, like Coen Brothers movie, like of, like of his life. But um, really fucking wacky guy. He was like an engineer at GM. Uh, he wanted to like GM was like an old man's car, you know, back in uh, or only produced old like Pontiacs were old man's cars back in the uh, in the seventies when he was working there, and he really wanted to like make a sporty Pontiac, uh, and they wouldn't let him, so he ended up like ordering the 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 parts department to put like a a turbo engine in like one of the like one of the like Pontiac you know Grand Prix like one of the old man cars they sell as like an right. options package. And it ended up being like the top selling car of the year. So they almost flipped out on him, but then they eventually were like, oh, okay, well, and they let him build like like the Pontiac GTO, which is this iconic sports car. Um, but so, you know, in his like cocaine induced, you know, uh, hubris, he decided to leave and start his own car company, which was the DeLorean Motor Company, 
Wasn't uh, that part of their downfall? Was that he built the, the the whole company with cocaine money? Well, no. So he he, it's, it's even it's even crazier. He initially so he needed funding. So the only place he could find to give him money, he um, got the British government to give him. Uh, money and warehouse space in northern ireland during during the troubles so he built a a factory in belfast and had you know protestant and catholic workers like he had separate entrances for them but it was like literally a (laughs) a fucking the only car ever built in ireland um and uh but then when thatcher got in she cut off his funding so then he needed to start he, he he was desperate for money, so he started drug smuggling, and then the FBI set him up in a sting. It's a fucking insane story. It, it, it's befitting of the car, like, but, um, yeah. So, <laughs> but but so he's building a car from scratch. He was like a he, he was a great engineer, but you know, cars take fucking decades of of you know perfection to get like you know if you're doing it from scratch basically on your own, a lot of shit's not going to work. Like it's just not you know <clears throat> it, Elon Musk. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Fucking Teslas have a million. There's four whole websites dedicated to all the shit that goes wrong with Tesla. Spontaneously combusting. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's so that's the wild story behind DeLorean, uh, which I think totally would be a, a great like satirical, but you know, biopic. But um, the so the car, you know, it looks iconic. Um, there's so many little pieces of iconography from this movie that. You know, nowadays we would look at it as product placement or like you know, like Hackney, but it just it just works for some whatever reason. This movie, like the, you know, the fucking Nikes in this movie, and obviously in uh, the second film where with the uh, with the the, the auto lace ups, uh, and even in the third film he's wearing the Nikes and you know the the fucking Nike Nike was that some kind Nike. of engine top, yeah. Um, but but it, and it's obviously product placement, but it but it's just such an like his. Marty's look in this movie is so iconic. You know, the red vest, the jeans, the Nikes, the 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 corduroy under shirt underneath. Um, and it's and it's another one of those things that just came together. You know, kind of last minute because if you look at, um, so there was you know initially uh, Michael J. Fox wasn't the uh, original Marty McFly. They wanted him but he was tied up doing family ties and they wouldn't let him out of his contract or they wouldn't let him, you know, shoot it on the side. So they had to go to Eric Stoltz, uh, who, uh, people remember. Blew it. Blew it. Yeah. 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 He's a good actor. He just wasn't right for the role. He was in, you know, he was in mask. He was in, he was an uh, asshole too. Uh, Apparently. Yeah. That's another, he was like trying to be a method actor in this movie. (laughs) And not, not the movie for that sort of behavior. Like, it's just a no, weird... No, no. And apparently he almost uh, broke Thomas Wilson's collarbone uh, after he'd already told him, like, hey, dude, take it easy. Like, we're, we're, yeah, like in their, we're not actually in their fighting fight each scenes, other. Like, he would really, like, get into it and push him or punch, you know. Like, yeah, yeah. And, and my favorite bit of trivia, I, I didn't go through the whole IMDb trivia page because there's just, it's like hours long this movie but, has an insane amount of research um, and trivia, yeah. they they shot for six weeks with Stoltz before they fired him which is a long time to shoot into a movie before they recast that's like they most shot of the almost movie. the whole movie they shot like yeah, yeah it, 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 it it's hard to quantify because things are shot out of sequence but sure. i mean you probably could have put an hour and 15 minutes of the movie together with what they shot of, of Stoltz already so part of his method acting bullshit was insisting that people call him marty mcfly on set you know, like in between takes, which is just like, 
like, dude, you're not Daniel Day Lewis. Shut the fuck up, right? But this when is he not got Lincoln, yeah. when uh when he got fired, uh, when Christopher Lloyd was told that uh, Stoltz was to be replaced, he said, "Who's Eric Stoltz?" <laughs> <laughs> and upon further explanation added oh I thought his actual name was Marty <laughs> so total, <laughs> total fucking rip on it that's great because most people when they talk about it they're like oh we feel really bad that Eric Stoltz got replaced it just didn't work out <laughs> he just doesn't give a fuck but if you talk to Christopher Lloyd or, or Thomas Wilson they're like fuck that guy I was like Th- Thomas Wilson said he almost like if they, if they actually had shot the scene where he fucking twists his arm, he was like, yeah, I was going to break his arm for real. Yeah, he was going <laughs> to get a receipt on him for, for all the shit <laughs> yeah. that he did. Um, and But, you know, the reason I brought... Well, I mean, obviously I wanted to mention that, but the reason I, I brought that up is because if you look at... There's, you know, some still... There's a lot of stills, and there's some uh, video footage of him in the role, and he doesn't have that look. Like, he's wearing a lot of black. He He's, you know, he, he actually looks a lot more 50s, even when he goes back initially before you know he meets up with the doc so it's very uh and he actually looks a lot more like crispin glover too so it would actually have made more sense for him to be his his son but um it just he did he just was not right for the role he didn't look right um it's crazy that the studio let them reshoot basically the entire movie after not seeing it work but i mean that's because you have steven spielberg you know producing this if you have some lowly you know producer first time producer on this thing no fucking way the studio says oh yeah we'll set you know 50 million 30 million dollars on fire whatever it costs to shoot those six weeks right right that that was well, a tremendous uh, amount of reshooting they did for this movie they you know shot I, the I whole think thing that was you know what at what point was spielberg involved because i know i read that this the script was rejected 44 times before it was finally greenlit so yeah, they 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 shopped it. So I, I've I've read a few books about the because again that you know I I don't know if I mentioned this up top, but this is easily one of my top five favorite films of all time. I've seen all three of these movies conservatively, I'd say hundreds of times. Class um, traitor. I, yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I, the the uh, Robert Zemeckis and and Bob Gale, the writer and director, uh. They shopped this around uh, a lot. Nobody would take it. They shot Disney almost took it, but they were really weirded out by the whole like incest element of the movie. So they're like, we can't. Which is one of the best parts of it. Uh, God bless Leah Thompson for completely embracing that. (laughs) And if you watch interviews with her, she's like, yeah, that's the reason why I took this role because I thought it was fucking hilarious. It is, and and it's so funny because it's like obviously her character doesn't know. That's her son, but her as an actor knows, and she totally leaned into it to like really oh, make so it good. make it like uncomfortable, but like the way that she's getting into it, like you, like she's embracing the idea of it as an actor because she probably thinks you know Marty McFly is cute too, but just you know the concept of it that you know it that that there there's a Freudian element to it. Right, like not just the Florence Nightingale effect, but like there, there's a Freudian element to it as well. Uh, and then we'll, we'll get more into kind of the morality of of it, and kind of you know some of Marty's actions later into this. But like you know he's yeah. he's initially completely grossed out by it, but then realizes like he has to lean into it too <laughs> as a form of manipulation, and you know it totally messes with his head even more. Oh, yeah. And we'll talk this later. We'll up. talk later about uh, one of the scenes that was cut. Uh, later oh, okay. on in the production so, too, um, yeah. But so so they shopped it around. You know, Disney rejected all these people. Yeah. But like everyone was saying to them, it's too whole because this was a, you know the eighties. 
the era of like the teen sex comedy, you know, Porky's fucking Animal Hat, like all those movies were coming out. And most of the studios were saying like, it's not raunchy enough. It's too, it's too clean. It's too this. Why don't you take it to Disney? And then Disney said, you know, we're not going to take a movie about fucking insect. Like, so they were kind of caught in between, you know, the two worlds. And then they eventually had to go to their friend uh, Spielberg, who that I think uh, Zemeckis had known from film school or somebody had known from film school. Um, and he brought it to Universal and Universal took it on. But of course, they made a ton of changes, as we said, you know, the time machine, turning it from a refrigerator into a DeLorean, which, you know, of course, saved the movie. I mean, this I don't I don't think we'd be talking about this movie right now if there was a movie, you know, with all the same elements, but it was a, a fucking refrigerator instead of a uh, a DeLorean. Um, well, I and, mean, you can, you, that's with the car, you can make it into a fucking ride at Universal Studios. So they were, they were thinking forward oh, for sure. I, I am so happy that I got to ride that thing before they fucking took it down when I was, when I was a kid. Like, I don't know why Universal Studios like hates their fucking awesome attractions. They got rid of that. They got rid of, um the terminator 3d thing that they had that like they get rid of all their good shit i think they got rid of king kong and jaws like like what the fuck like for like really shitty Eh. like modern movies like like spongebob the fucking um, 3d movie if you ever took the uh the tour around like their back lot you got to see like the the actual you know one of the DeLoreans, right and then like the the ship from flight of the navigator and they were all just like sitting on cement blocks rusting. And it was like, hey, here's how much we care about these things. And people were horrified. People yeah. were like, what the I fuck? Do you, you just left it out in the fucking rain? I mean, not that it rains that much in fucking, you know, wherever the fuck. Well, no, they but are. the elements, the humidity and shit, it's like, sure. it's terrible for those, for stainless steel. You just, know? Just, just the idea that they were showing off these, these amazing uh, vehicle set pieces that were just decaying. And thought that people wouldn't be shocked by that it was just like I, I mean there's there's a whole documentary yeah. about Back to the Future where they interview these people that were the, the you know the huge gearheads who went on that tour and were were just as shocked as I was and I was like I they they saw yeah. the same shit we're like we need uh-huh. to do something about this <laughs> and of course Universal was like okay you want to pay us money to to restore it yourself sure okay we'll we'll let you do that. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so uh, yeah, you know, and you know, Disney of course is a horrible company for a million different reasons, but they don't they understand the value of their of their uh memorabilia from their movies. They don't do that shit with their their pro- you know, they put them on display, they put it like they don't they, they, Universal has never really understood the value of their of their IP for some reason, uh, you know, whatever yeah. reason, but um yeah, so uh what were we talking about? So yeah, you know the the uh, all all the shit's iconic. Um, the, <laughs> another thing that I thought that got a lot of pe- product placement was Pepsi. Um, but again, it almost it didn't even occur. To, it doesn't even occur when you're watching the movie that it's product placement. But you know, it, I feel like uh, the entire the, decade of the '80s was a product placement for Pepsi. Exactly. I, I think it's you like, just become numb to it at that point. Yeah. Um, but, but, you yeah. know, he goes in to like, oh, let me get a Pepsi free. You know, I can't give you a Pepsi until you pay oh, for God. it. That dialogue uh, is so corny and just works. It is. Well. It is. Uh, the tab, which again, all these things. Can't like, give you a tab unless you order something. It's like <laughs> Pe- Pepsi for- free existed for like five minutes in 1984. Yet we all know what Pepsi free is because of this movie. Like tab existed probably for a few years in the 80s, but now it's back because I would assume because of the the you know the the the, the way this movie kind of kept it in the back of people's minds. Um, 
so many little things like that, which are like, so, and obviously the DeLorean uh, tied to a very specific narrow time period, yet iconic and, you know, will last forever because of this all time classic film that, you know, knew knew what to do with these little pieces of of pop culture it, it's kind you know of about crazy. the california raisins product tie-in that didn't happen no no all right so this was there was a ton of actual product placements in this movie where they just pay mm-hmm. money to help make the movie right on the promise that they get featured prominently so mm-hmm. california raisins uh ceo gave universal a hundred thousand dollars for what was to be four uh like plot related product placements like not just seeing their logo but like the actors are interacting with the product yeah uh and when they actually shot it uh, zemeckis was like no i'm not doing that <laughs> so he <laughs> he like apparently filmed him like eating uh some fucking you know like cereal where they they didn't just like eat uh raisin bran it was like something else and then they put california raisins raisins on the cereal <laughs> and he was like it looks like they're eating dirt so i'm not going to shoot that i'm not going to like he just he tested didn't like it so the only California Raisins product placement that actually appears in the film is the, uh, the the bus bench that the hobo is sleeping on has an ad for California Raisins on. And that was the only one that was left in the film. And, of course, California Raisins was pissed because they, they spent $100,000 and the, the rest of their things didn't appear in the movie. And the only one they had that ended up in there was, was a fucking hobo bench. <laughs> so I don't know if they sued or just got their money back or yeah. what, but I was, that's, that's one. But everyone remembers the opening shot of the fucking Burger King, right? And that oh, apparently yeah, that too, of wasn't a planned product placement. That was just there. <laughs> so it was just a per- uh, it was just a good frame for that shot because you have that really long street with all the kind of signs and shit on it when the when the the uh, pickup truck pulls out right and they, well, they probably just also, scouted it and was like oh yeah that was a you good know spot. that's that's where his garage was right where Doc's garage was which oh, yeah. originally was his property where the mansion was that uh, you know if you if you look really close at the opening shot of the film with all the clocks. There's a ton of details about the story in that opening shot. All the newspapers, yeah. The newspaper clippings of, you know, the, the one that stands out to me was Doc Brown's mansion burned to the ground at some point, right? And they never talk about that in the film, but there's a shitload of fan theories on YouTube about what happened with that. Like, hmm. you know, because it basically says that his mansion burned down and then he sold the property to developers. And we see that... You know, kind oh, he of burned it th- himself <laughs> for the money well, to build the car. Somebody figured out what really happened, and they're pretty sure it was Biff. And ah. that this that was his backup plan when the sports almanac thing, uh, when he, you know when he had the time machine, like yeah. he didn't just go back in time with the sports almanac. He used the time machine to go back and burn down uh, Doc's mansion, not realizing that all of his time machine stuff was in the garage. Right? At least that's oh, what the theory shit. is. That's I, I like that theory a lot. That that yeah. actually tracks. Yeah. But it also, the opening shot with his garage, you know, and then showing that, like, none of his property is there anymore. It's all fucking strip malls and drive-ins and everything. Also tracks with the whole, you know, the idea of, like, the mall, the Twin Pines Mall, uh, you know, when, when Doc's like, all of this used to be farmland and, uh, you know, the Peabody <laughs> family and the Pines, you know. And then, of course, one of the details is, you know, it's Twin Pines Mall. Until Marty <laughs> goes back in time and runs over one of the pine trees, and then when he comes back to 1985, it's Lone Pine Mall. <laughs> so just that one little thing changed the fucking little so, little th- bit of history. That's, that's what makes this movie and the series great. Is there's so there's hundreds of little 
moments of continuity within the film and within the three films where it's both a reflection and like a, a logical conclusion of little like sight gags that you would never catch if you weren't watching closely or if you hadn't seen it a million times. And how many times I, do you watch this? A hundred? Oh, yeah. yeah. And I still like find little ones, you know, that I'm like, oh, shit. Still, after 35 years, because, you know, yeah. a lot of people that love this movie weren't even born yet uh, when it came out. I was, I was born when the first one came out, yeah. Yeah, I, I was. I remember when this came out, and it was, it, you know, and, and one of the amazing things is even, even as a five-year-old, all of it, everything that happens in this movie makes sense. Whether you're five years or 85 years old, everything they explain makes sense, which is amazing because they have to sell you this whole complete world that take, takes place in two different times with people at different ages uh, with a bunch of sci-fi time travel shit and explain it all in a way that everyone's going to understand and be, not be bored by. I mean, the just the... The scene of, of Doc explaining the time machine and demonstrating it and all that, it's 15 minutes straight, that scene, of just exposition. And not once are you like, oh my god, I'm so bored of him fucking just talking. Right? Yeah, you it, never it, get the sense incredible. of like, oh, Captain Exposition, you know? Like, it really never <laughs> feels like that. Exactly. But, it's, it, it, but what they're doing as a first act is also setting up all these things that you think are just, you know, throwaway lines that mean nothing. And all of it, you know, has a has a payoff. All of it has a payoff. Talk about fulfilling. When you have all those setups and, and all these payoffs, you're like, you just, you repeatedly are like, oh, that's what it was. Oh, and this thing mm-hmm. connects to that. And you keep getting that 35 years later, watching it 100 times, 200 times, and you still get that. You're like, oh, my God, I never connected that before. <laughs> that's why fucking Zemeckis. Well, oh, yeah, Zemeckis. I, I literally had one this morning. <laughs> I literally had one this morning, and I, maybe some people will be like, oh, of course. But, you know, obviously so at the end of the film, after, you know, Marty gives the doc the note that he tears up but saves to find out that he's going to get gunned down by, you know, generic Libyan terrorists from <laughs> from some whatever organ. Like, uh, you know, that's just one of those other little 80s details. Like, oh, it doesn't matter. They're they're brown. They'll be t- that's fine. You don't need to explain why they're right. <laughs> who they are. Um, it, he gets shot, but he's wearing a bulletproof vest. And then I was like. Oh, wait, fuck. In the third movie, that's how Marty literally foils, you know, uh, uh, Buford uh, Mad Dog's shoot. Is he has a Mad Dog? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) He has the fucking bulletproof vest. And it's like, it's just one of those subtle little things. There's so many little echoes in each of these films of the previous films. Um, and, and I, you know, obviously we're just reviewing the first one today. And I actually, we were talking about, we do want to eventually review. The other two, I, we were originally going to do the trilogy. I was like, I, I just, just got too, too much, much shit. Too I have much, too much shit for the much. first one. Like, well, I have so many you notes know, I want. You go mentioned the, the bulletproof vest, but the, you know, he, the, the 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 thing he does specifically is use a plate from a stove, which is exactly what uh, the actual Clint Eastwood in, does yeah. in. Um, uh, good, bad, and the ugly. I, think? I don't. Rem- I don't remember if it's in Good, it's bad, and ugly the, or one of the, the earlier the, ones. Fistful of dollars, dollars, or $50 dollars more. But yeah. uh, still, I mean, it's it's the 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 repetition. You know, they always say repetition is the key to good storytelling. Another um, trilogy, and, by the way. <laughs> they stole right. from. Uh, yeah, uh, but you know, just you know, Biff with the you know the manure. Um, you know, having the chase scene <laughs> in the in the town square be replicated in all three movies. Uh, you know the cafe slash saloon. You know, uh, just just all of that, doing the things over and over, having the same well, like the manure, scale model of the city that they build for all yeah. three movies. You know, well ex- the, ex- the manure you know. has 
it's like a jones manure in in the old west and it's like d jones sanitation in the 80 in 85 and then or in uh, 55 it's just funny there's so many little like again like sight gags of like you know these companies passing like little there's little stories almost to each like set decoration and prop in the movie it's it's kind of like you know unique in that way is that there's a lot of detail paid to all of those little things well and it's also this is what you get when you're trying to sell a movie for years and no one's buying it is you keep having time to add to it and add to it and add to it. Yeah. Whereas nowadays it's like, okay, here's, here's the the pitch for the movie. Okay, great. It's going to be released in 18 months. Go. And it's like, it hasn't even been written yet. So you throw a script together in a couple months and it's not going to have just, just exhausting amount of thought and detail and, you know, passion put into it the way that this did. Um, And and consequently, you're not going to remember it. You know, thirty-five years later, it'll be a footnote. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's that's you know the perfect storm of why this movie was was is still so iconic. Uh, you know, other other than the, the the kind of like product iconography I mentioned, you know, just some other things. Skateboarding. Uh, you know, obviously, skateboarding exploded in in the late eighties, early nineties. You know, with X Games and Tony Hawk. And uh, it X- exploded but- in the late seventies in Southern California. No, um, well, but honestly. in in pop culture, I mean, I, that was a big, you know, that was when it started. But I'm in terms of like suburban white kids in in you know in 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 everywhere in America, uh, being really into it. I think a lot of the reason that this became so iconic was because of the prominent you know use of skateboarding in in these three films. Uh, you know, I know, like I was reading a lot about. Uh, it is semi-related, but the Tony Hawk uh, Pro Skater, the video game that came out in, I think, 97, uh, you know, and Tony Hawk was saying that, like, yeah, like, skateboarding was, like, dead by by the late 90s, and this game revived it, um, but I think that the initial, like, kind of, the, the initial, like, pop culture boom, I think, really came from these films, um, because it's well, such uh, an important plot element to the story, like, the, the, the various, sure. you know... <laughs> the, well, yeah, they didn't obviously. have to have a stunt double do most of the skateboarding because Michael J. Fox was already like really good at it. Like he already skateboarded on his own. I um, I can't fucking believe they let him do the, the the like the trailer hit like where he's like hanging on. That's I mean I got to imagine the the SAG union guys like you cannot fucking hang off the back of a pickup truck. Well, on a, you have <laughs> a you're only going about ten miles an hour, right? And you got a stunt driver. Someone's going to be really careful. You also notice that, like every time he grabs onto the back of a uh, of a, one of those cars, the driver like turns, like you know, the stunt driver turns and looks slightly to make sure he's made contact, uh-huh, uh-huh. right? Which kind of like belays the the idea that like the driver doesn't notice. I mean, the the one does and kind of just like shrugs, like "All right, kid, you like the like." He yeah, you get shot if you get that to, to a real a real pickup <laughs> truck nowadays. Like nobody with a pickup truck is going to be like, "Oh yeah, fine." Fucking <laughs> right. lunatics, like definitely right. or you know, open carrying. It was a different era. It was. It was. Um, but well, we, but we, I we mean, should we should talk a little bit about Marty McFly as a character. Sure. Um, yeah. You know, just like the the iconography, but also just sort of the attitude, right? Because this movie gets. Um, kind of beat on a little bit by being a little too conservative and being a little too Reaganite in the message it's selling. Um, but conversely, Marty McFly is definitely kind of a rebellious, you know, fuck authority character. Yeah. Um, but he's also sort of a, an everyman character in that, you know, we're, we're, he doesn't really have any flaws. You know, his only flaw is like he's got a temper 
You know, the whole mm-hmm. like, oh, what are you, chicken? And he like, gets pissed about it. But that's not really even in this movie. That's in the second two. Because they had to have like some other element to it that, that you know, was, puts him at risk, right? Yeah. Um, but in this movie, like he really, like there's nothing he can't do. It's just he has to sort of socially <clears throat> convince other people to go along with what he's trying to do without telling them the real reason why. You know, and of course he slips up and calls his mom, mom, calls his dad, 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 daddy-o. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but... You know, you, you, as as a rule, you have to have a protagonist have flaws, otherwise the audience doesn't identify with them. Unless, yeah. unless you have a flawless character that doesn't change throughout the film, but changes everyone else around them, right? And that's what this movie really is, is, you know, by the end of it, uh, you know, his dad, George McFly, goes from a wimp to suddenly being confident by just, you know, punching a bully once and, like, shoving another guy on the <laughs> dance floor and kissing his girlfriend. <laughs> Uh, that's all it takes, right? Uh, but I think that's really interesting because you have to know that that's the the rule in order to break it and know how to break it in a way that is still going to make the audience resonate with that character. Um, and, you know, being, you know, whip smart, funny, and having perfect comedic timing the way Michael J. Fox has uh, doesn't hurt either. Physical t- physical comedy, too. He's so good at, like, the physical, you know, all the, like, the put where he's, like, putting the pants on in, in, in Lorraine's room and he just trips it. All that little shit like yeah. that, he's just so good at that, like, I'm sure Eric Stoltz could not, that was, like, a big thing missing from his, his version I, of Marty. I know. It, it, and you look at the chemistry that he has with Christopher Lloyd, too. Um, oh, there, yeah. There's when, when Lorraine comes to the garage, right, and they're like, quick, cover the car up. Like, when she comes in and, and Doc kind of introduces himself, right, and then she kind of walks ahead and then Doc is, like, behind her and, like, immediately looks up at Marty like, what the, what the fuck do we do? <laughs> like, it's just <laughs> such a great look. Uh, or, or when, you know, when, when Marty first goes to Doc's garage and... Uh, Doc sticks the little suction cup on his head and he's trying to read his mind. Like he doesn't, Marty doesn't react to that when he gets the suction cup stuck on his head. He just looks up at it and then just like looks directly back at Doc without moving his head at all. He's not like, what the hell is this? He's just like, okay, we're doing this. It's such a great great, non-reaction that makes it funnier. And it's also a great bit of acting to just be like, yeah, no, I'm so used to the the fact that he's just this fucking lunatic and he always does weird <laughs> shit like that, you know, like it's just, just, it was just a exactly. way of expressing that with in it. one look. Well, and um, they also, people talk about how they never really explain like how they became friends in the first place and they don't need to, but there's a little clue in the beginning when he goes to the garage and hears this fucking, uh, you know, 10 foot wide speaker <laughs> that he's like amping up, turning all these little switches and turns the key that has a little label that does the Kubrick reference on it and then hits it, you know, one note and blows him across the room. Uh, and he clearly didn't expect it to be that powerful, right? And then he gets the phone call from Doc and he's like, oh yeah, by the way, don't turn on the amp because I made some modifications that might, it, it might uh, blow out. And he's like, I'll remember that. <laughs> so clearly, <laughs> there, you know, he's putting up with all this bullshit from Doc, but he's trying to get something out of it as well, which is I want Doc to build me the biggest speaker possible because I want to be a fucking rock god. So it's kind of yeah. there's a bit of like, <laughs> you know, uh, what's what's the what's the line that Hannibal Lecter has uh, from um, Science of the Lambs? Which quid uh, pro quo. There we oh, go. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's clearly like they're they are friends. They care about each other, but there's you do wonder where they services. met. Though, that, you know, like yeah. Well, I, I think the you know the whole thing with like a, a Sherman and Peabody cartoon from the seventies, like that that dynamic or that relationship uh, was already sort of established. Like just a, a kid and his wacky 
mad scientist friend, right? And we also mm -hmm. see that with Rick and Morty now. They just got nominated for a shitload of, uh, of Emmys. Which is uh, just so, Back to the Future, basically. It's like the same dynamic. Yeah, you know? <laughs> exactly, exactly. O only like with a you know sort of political angle, like here's what not to do, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think people just kind of bought it because you you don't really need to explain. Like he's a wacky inventor, and here's his teenage sidekick. Like that's all we need to know. Yeah. And they're going to have adventures together, right? And that was nowadays really... people would just react really poorly to that dynamic if it was like in a new film, you know? Like if it wasn't <laughs> like be like there's something going on there. What the fuck? Like right, know, but... right. Well, this movie is very grounded in in heterosexuality to the point where they had to cut a scene out of the movie. Uh, where where Marty's so worried about making out with his mom that he might turn gay, and then they realize like the the casual homophobia of that didn't really track. So that that scene's cut out of the movie now. I'm, I'm so glad because like that would have totally you know it, it's just great that there's really almost nothing in this movie that you know ties it to 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 the 80s, and that would have definitely been like despite all the icon, you know what I mean? Like it's still you can yeah. look at it now, and it's that, still kind that of would timeless. have been that would have been really fucking cringy. The other the other part that they cut out there uh, is when Doc bribes the cop, right? There's there's you like you can see it still. Yeah. Oh yeah, you can see it at the background. He's starting to open his, up his wallet. I was like, is he bribing the cop? And then I watched a bunch <laughs> of stuff. It's like where they actually show him open his wallet and give him the money and everything, but. Um, still, like you wonder, like all the like, how how often does he bribe this cop? <laughs> this is gotta be oh, like yeah, a, the, the fact that he knew, thing. like you know, yo, you got a permit for that? Yeah, of course. And they pulls his wallet out. He he's literally has after hours access to a county courthouse uh, mm -hmm. with apparently no security whatsoever. You can just waltz right in, go up to the fucking clock, <laughs> which is yep. just incredible. Um, when well, he is in in the fifties, he still he still has his family fortune. He's got his mansion, so I mean, he's probably known around town as like sure, you know, the rich eccentric sure. scientist guy. Um, yeah. So uh, the so another a couple other little pieces of iconography I really wanted to just mention, uh, or well, one specifically uh, is guitar in this movie. So you know, the great iconic classic scene. Uh, at the Enchantment Under the Sea dance where uh, after uh, one of the guitarists from uh, the guitar player from the, the Marvin Berry and the Starlighters uh, injures his hand trying to let Marty out of the trunk he was locked in, uh, they need somebody to play guitar. And of course, Marty, who we see, you know, playing guitar in the beginning, uh, playing <laughs> playing uh, Power of Love, by the way, which is great. You know, just like an instrumental version of that uh, for Huey Lewis. Uh he you know he he goes up there and he plays um earth angel with the band uh pretty easy song on guitar you know just kind of four chords uh and then you know he and then he's like oh well you know why don't we try this one more when they when they kind of badger him to play one more and he get and he gets them to play johnny be good with them uh which i think it come out like in like 58 or 59 like not much after this which is kind of funny that they make it sound like nobody has ever played this type of music before. Um, I, I'm just looking it up real quick. Oh no, actually not. Uh, 58. Yeah, so only three years after the after the the dance in that movie. Right. Um, well, I would I would say that like white suburban kids probably heard, heard that kind of music, but that band would definitely have heard that kind of music, <laughs> right? Yeah, that's what I'm there saying. Was, like, there was a lot of rockabilly in the early '50s, um, mostly black people who white audiences never would have heard because they never would have played stuff like that on white radio. 
Um, so the band's reaction is kind of you know a little strange, but I think it was kind of more like just the the crazy Eddie Van Halen, uh, you know, finger tapping and like <laughs> wriggling on the floor. They probably would have looked at a little strange, yeah. I think. Um, yeah. But yeah, the, well, the, was... the idea that you know that once again uh, a white person steals rock and roll from black people is, is very much. Um, you know, it's done as a joke in this movie, and then of course, like it becomes like you know he he call you know your cousin, <laughs> uh, <laughs> your on, cousin on the phone, like that. Is, that's a little problematic to me now to watch that because I know in real life how often you know people like Elvis made tons of money by stealing music written by black people that were paid nothing for yeah. for their work as artists, right? So that that kind of bugs me, but I know it's still it's kind of like okay, this is just a, like another way that. You I know, almost wonder he, if it's a tongue-in-cheek joke about that, though. You know, because that, that was maybe a little back bit. Then. Maybe a little bit, yeah. Um, and there's other there's other elements to this that are that are like that, where you know, with the the, the guy who's mop on the floor, who's like, yeah, mayor, I'm gonna be mayor someday, and the 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 guy that owns the shop is he's like, Negro mayor, that'll never happen. That'll be the day. Um, he calls him colored mayor, which is even worse. A colored mayor. That's what. It, <laughs> I, you know, I don't. I mean, in the 1950s, either one was was commonly used. It no, I a, know my, my grandma. Well, I shouldn't, I shouldn't um, out her, but my grandmother but still you, says you, colored you, sometimes. Do you know when the first <laughs> black mayor was elected in the United States? <clears throat> um, I would think like the 60s. I don't know. Yeah, you're 70s? right. 70s, 60s. Yeah, when? Yep. Or, uh, or who was it? It was the '60s, but it was the 1860s. Oh <laughs> so wow! Okay, there there have been black mayors since like literally right after the Civil War, right? Um, now the, the, those were mostly small towns, but a lot of them were majority white towns too. Uh, it was really? uh, let's see, 1888, first African mayor of a predominantly white U.S. town and of a Western town was actually Wheatfield, California, 1888. Um, now, the first mayor of a major American city, we're talking big metropolis, wasn't until the 1960s. Sure. Uh, but, but again, Hill Valley is supposed to be a small town in this movie, right? In the, in the 80s and the 50s, it's not a big town, right? So, yeah. so it's th- California, though, but still, yeah, it is a small, well, it has a small like town said, mentality. Wheatland, California, first black yeah, mayor, yeah. 1888, predominantly white, <laughs> so... Uh, but still, it's it's reflecting the attitudes of the '50s that you know, even though there had been black mayors, this this white cafe owner is not aware of any of them and thinks it's never happened before. So, <laughs> uh, you know, it it is sort of a callback. But one of the things that I think is so interesting is it, you know, this is kind of the politics of the movie a little bit, or the unintentional politics, or sort of the cultural zeitgeist is, you know, this was this the whole idea of like the 80s calling back to the 50s as being an era of, of wholesome conservative nuclear family goodness was very much promoted by the Ronald Reagan and you know the Ralph Reed uh, you know young Republican movement in the 80s that you know the, the 60s and 70s was all this this hippie uh, new age hedonism doing drugs and everything and that was bad we need to go back to the 50s because that was where we were good and wholesome well in the 50s we were carpet bombing uh, North Korea, uh, you know, we were we were really ramping up our imperialism after World War II. We we turned yeah. into just you know we and we were we needed horribly we needed a war brutalizing the economy. Yeah, we were horribly brutalizing black people in the South. You know, uh, lynchings were happening all the time, right? So the notion that fifties were wholesome is completely bullshit. Um, but you know, the, again, like the 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 eighties was a time when we really started to market the idea of a decade as a product to ourselves. Right. It was mm-hmm. it was a new wave of capitalism as a rejection 
of you know the the anti-war movement of the 60s and 70s so you know in, in a way the film embraces that and is selling that itself but it's also you know it's it's also like marty mcfly is you know he the he's sort of stunned by the 50s but it's also a very almost fantasy version of the 50s that he's seen that we know just from our own history isn't really even true either. Oh, yeah. Right. Sure. So it's it's like the, he's rebelling against authority by standing up to, you know, the principal and to, uh, you know, Biff is, is an authority figure in this movie. And, but, you know, again, even in the 50s, there was a ton of movies about rebelling against authority. You know, Rebel Without a Cause and James Dean and like there was a ton of motorcycle biker movies that were all, you know, so even in the 50s, they were selling this idea of like, you know, fuck authority as a counterculture uh, mode of cinema to get kids to go to the movie, right? So yeah, it, it's just, it's very cyclical, but but again, it's it's a it's a fantasy version of the 50s that's presented in this movie. It's not, it, it is presented as virtuous, but it's still, it's Marty McFly's America. It's Marty McFly's 50s. It's all through his, you know, his lens. Uh, you know, the, the only deviation of that is, is where he doesn't have the intelligence to realize that TV is brand new and he probably shouldn't tell people he's got two of them. <laughs> <laughs> he's, pre- he's pretty bad at like not, yeah, not not pulling out the, you know, anachronisms when he's like it. It's it obviously for comedic effect, but like you think anyone sure. else would be like. You know, a little smarter with certain things that he does, but well, th- this um, movie does really reinforce American exceptionalism, right? And and I think you know the the right would have us believe that American exceptionalism is just you know the idea of what makes America unique. But when you see them put it in practice, it really is more narcissism, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's why they think America is better than other countries, and why that gives us license to abuse people in other countries. Right. Yeah. And and to me, that's a dangerous idea. Right. So when the people who criticize this movie do so, I think it's with that knowledge. Right. Of, of what sure. American exceptionalism really is. Right. And this film really does set up a dichotomy, though, between that American exceptionalism and sort of the individual uh, as being more important than the, you know, sort of morality. We talked about how Marty is presented with all these moral conundrums, like, what do I do about this? It's like, well, if I do that, it'll be disastrous for these people, or, you know, I got to fix the future and everything. But then he very, becomes very flexible in certain moments, and, and you know, as does Doc, where he says, you know, he rips up the letter because he doesn't want to know about the future because it could, it could ruin things. Then he puts the letter back together, and Marty's like, but Doc, what about all that stuff about ruining the, the time continuum? And Doc's response is, he says, well, I just thought, what the hell? And then they cut yeah. the scene, and it's like, what? <laughs> you didn't even have, like, any pontification about why you, uh, you know, just, just went against it, you know? Um, so I was looking for, like, a, like a scholarly essay that would kind of uh, voice some of my thoughts on this better than I could myself. Uh, and I found one on some, like, UK academic uh, uh, essay website from some university, but it had no author which I thought was really strange. There was no author listed, right? But if you don't mind, I wanted to read some of that here. Yeah. Uh, just, just to, you know, because anything this good, anything that has this much longevity has to have deeper themes and, and ideas behind it, whether intentional or unintentional, to make it really resonate as a cultural icon the way it does, right? And, and whether that's good or bad, uh, you know, whether it's commentary on America or it, it created a huge element of American pop culture, which it did, 
um, <clears throat> people are going to think about this for a long time. And I think this, this author really did a good job here. So uh, he writes, uh, American exceptionalism is often defined as being the way in which America differs from other nations. The movie shows idealized versions of the typical American way of life in the 1950s and the 80s. Uh, the, um, these time periods show how Americanness also uh, is also deeply rooted within American history itself as it provides a distinct American identity. Now, I would, I would argue that this film is rather ahistorical as to uh, what the 50s really was, but again, it's a fantasy version of the 50s. Uh, so he continues, the 1950s are pictured as being peaceful, conservative, and family-oriented. Traditional values maintained the importance of community and family life. Uh, the movie also promotes Americans' exceptionalism by focusing on individualism, an important element of Americanness. Marty's individual actions changed his future. Related to this is the notion that the movie sees the future as having unlimited possibilities. It treats the future as the new frontier, hence comparing it to the Wild West. This is, of course, interesting because, you know, at, at, at we eventually do go back to the Wild West. And one of the things I love is that, you know, to, to blend in, uh, Doc gives Marty this just, like, garishly colorful uh, cowboy <laughs> outfit. That when he goes back in time, everyone's like, w "Did you come from the circus? Like, what are you wearing?" Yeah. <laughs> you know. So this idea that like our, our our notion of the past is being completely inaccurate because of our own nostalgia is is reflected in that that joke in Back to the Future. I, I, I so think that was so I intentional. I, oh, absolutely. But I but I love that that is like <clears throat> that that idea that like the past isn't really what we think it is because we've romanticized it. Uh, it is part of that that uh, dichotomy between what the films you know, saying two different things at the same time, right? And why everyone likes it, because they pick up on those things in different ways. So the author continues here. Where was I? Uh, totally lost my place. Uh, the frontier is the origin of the strong sense of freedom and individual uh, individualism deemed essential in American life. Throughout the movie, Marty is constantly reminded of his um, individual freedom and liberty as demonstrated by the often recurring line, if you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. Uh, which Doc actually never says in the movie. He says it, and his girlfriend says it, but Doc never actually says it. Yeah, Marty says it to Doc. Right. Or, or no, I'm sorry, Marty says it to George, rather, when he's uh, talking to him, like when he's hanging up his uh, yeah. his clothes, and then George, of course, says it to him at the end with the uh, right. where he has the book. Right. And, yeah. Uh, political record of the 1980s embraced this mindset. It is no secret that President Ronald Reagan loved this movie, uh, because of this message and of the fact that he was the subject of a joke, Reagan even <laughs> quoted the movie uh, in his 1986 State of the Union address. He said, as they said in the film Back to the Future, where we're going, we don't need roads. I don't know what he was referring to in his speech there. but Well, it's uh, also funny, it, just real quick with that joke, is the joke is making fun of the fact that he's the president. Because Doc is like, that's fucking ridiculous. That asshole could never be president. You know, he's like, right. like, really? The actor? Like, you know, suppose Jane Wyman's the first lady? Like, you know, it's just, it's preposterous, which is is why right. know, it's you know we and also now, love born in the usa which was an, uh, an anti-war song so of course they don't they don't He's think about the meaning of anything but but yeah. you know you know who do we have as president now biff tannen uh, biff tannen from the second <laughs> movie exactly yeah, biff tannen from any of the movies is, is just as bad but you know but but it's like i think the screenwriters literally said he based uh you know 80s like evil like bad 80s biff like Rich Biff on oh, of Donald course. Trump he, he's at, a, in 1985. Yeah, he's a casino magnet, you know, like he's yeah. he, absolutely. So 
Um, so Reagan said this in his State of the Union address, uh, once again promoting America's access to unlimited possibilities and its except exceptionalism in contrast to other nations, which really is just like selfishness. Like we'll take whatever we want from other countries, and if they yeah. won't give us what we want, we'll bomb them. So Manifest uh, the destiny. movie, exactly, exactly. So again, like the, the idea of conquering the West is rooted in genocide and slavery and colonialism. So that that idea of exceptionalism to me is abhorrent, right? Yep. Um, so uh, you know, I love this movie, but it's still mm -hmm. like that that element of it of of, of what it's expressing in that regard. Uh, I, I get why Crispin Glover like didn't you know why he had problems with with it right yeah um, the movie also expresses the double-edged characteristic of American exceptionalism this is again dichotomy uh, an idea put forward by Seymour Martin Lipset in exceptionalism a double-edged sword his book he wrote uh, he explains that America is a country of contrasts high morality is promoted in society yet Marty's morality is constantly being challenged it starts off high by not willing to seduce his mother but it declines rapidly when he finds out that it is an essential part of the scheme of making his parents fall in love. This also uh, suggests that Marty is more concerned with the ends rather than the means. He is willing to seduce, seduce his mother if it helps him secure his future. This focus on the ends uh, rather than the means is typical for American identity, according to Lipset. He states that Americans put a lot of stress on success, which often leads to a decline of morality. I totally agree with that. I um, agree with that. I don't think that was the intentionality of that element of like marty not wanting to seduce his mother though i think no. that's a little bit you he's know. not thinking about that but we're, we're looking at it from a uh, you know a meta analysis sure sure level here you know why why certain things resonate culturally uh with us as americans you know clearly it's it's world famous now right but we've also been exporting uh, american cinema uh, globally yeah just american culture we didn't really there. think about worldwide um marketing for american films in the 80s and now you know we changed the entire movie to make more money in china china is a bigger market for american films than america is right so yeah. we make all we make sure that like we never offend china to make a you know another billion dollars there every time we put out a marvel movie <clears throat> so he continues here uh there are three prevalent american myths present in back to the future and we talk about myths we're talking about themes or ideas that are uh constructs that are somewhat true but largely um you know sort of a, a zeitgeist of things that we've imagined uh through propaganda or just through how we'd like to see ourselves as a society uh so they are incorporated into the overarching ideology of the american dream first the myth of the small town america uh, or of small town america uh, small town life is pictured as being the perfect definition of american society the localized life excludes big corporations and the big government, which fulfills Americans' desire to be free. The second myth deals with the suburban dream. Uh, this myth is embodied by the, the, by the McFly family at the end of the movie. Their happiness sends across the message that every American should pursue such a life because it is within everyone's reach. The third myth concerns the idea of a scientist who is in his own garage invents something which can change the world, i.e. Doc Brown's DeLorean. Thus, the ideal of living happy without needing any help from big government or the government from, oh, I'm sorry, from big corporations or the government is once again promoted. This also refers back to America's strong sense of individualism. These three myths are used as discourse for the construction of Marty's America, and they serve as ideologies. They convey and reinforce an image of both 1950s and 1980s America. Um, so there's two more paragraphs here, but I feel like they... they are somewhat redundant, but let me um, 
just skip down to the bottom here. Just to close this out, the movie analyzes American pop culture by giving a sketch of American culture in the 1950s and 1980s. However, the 50s and the 80s that the movie shows are specifically developed for the story, i.e. Back to the Future provides interpretations of those time periods. Thus, the 50s images are constructions and fabrications in themselves. Uh, the portray uh, portrayed 1950s cannot be considered to be more real for the audience who experienced the 50s firsthand than for the 80s teens target audience. Hence, the movie fits within a postmodern perspective because it creates one cultural memory narrative. This particular approach to filmmaking is probably what made the sequel so successful. The interpretations of the past, present, and future make the movies fascinating. Yeah. No, it was great. Great essay. Um, and yeah, and and look and you know you mentioned Crispin Glover and that was one of his big uh issues with the role you know and he, he obviously got into a contract dispute but he really you know he complained a lot about the ending and wanted to change the end. he uh actually didn't show up for a day of shooting because he hated the ending so much and like you know at a protest kind of like skipped a day of shooting uh of that scene yeah because he hated the fact that the whole goal the the the, the reward for fixing you know fixing all the fuck-ups in the past and saving saving his future is this kind of materialistic like oh well we just have more money now and we go golfing and uh you know i sold a lot of books like it he he didn't like the the materialism oh and i have this brand new monster truck you know this big big truck you know now it's like right he he didn't like well, that that was the you know i i i agree. which i get i agree with him but but let's look at it a little a little closer so marty didn't go back in time on purpose that was an accident Right. And everything he sure. does, his goal is purely to survive, to go back to the life he had. He wasn't trying to change his parents into yuppies. Right. That was purely a byproduct of of his father not being bullied his entire life, which I would say is a good thing. Nobody should be bullied oh, yeah, like that I their agree. entire life. Right. And because of that, he has more confidence and is a more complete person rather than just somebody that sits there laughing at TV. Right. So with that confidence, he's slightly more wealthy but like they literally live, live in the exact same they live house. in the same house yeah <laughs> right and they i mean they, it wasn't it was playing tennis not golfing and i i grew up playing tennis my mother was fucking an amazing oh, tennis player tennis. my mother was a captain of a women's uh, senior tennis team that won a state championship so and, and she was a union school teacher right so hardly a bougie lifestyle that we had um and, you know they got some different furniture right and like they had a Beamer rather than whatever the car that was, which, you know, Beamer is and not And Biff worked for them expensive. versus the other right. way around, you know. So I would argue, like, they're, they're probably, uh, you know, upper middle class instead of lower middle class. Like, there was a huge change in wealth. So the idea that, like, suddenly they're total bougie yuppies, I, I think, is, like, it's being a little unfair. And, and again, this is, like, we're seeing this stark contrast because we, we saw the two different versions of their life within two hours, now, keep in mind, in, in their lives, that change happened over 35 years. So yeah. to, the, to them, they're like, uh, I don't... There wasn't even a change. It was just the natural progression of their lives. <laughs> exactly. You know, in exactly. Each, in each case. And I don't think it was really a reward. Mm -hmm. It was showing, like, well, here's, here's what you could have, not just by working hard and, and through rugged individualism uh, via the you know, Reagan idea, but just, like, here's what not being uh, attacked and picked on your whole life yeah. will get you. Here's what just having a normal life. So here's why, you know, people like Biff should be the one <laughs> who who's waxing your car, not, uh, you know, smacking you in the face and saying, hey, do my homework for me so I don't have to do anything, right? Um, well, and, and again, yeah. it's, it, it's, it's just a movie, 
right? Like they're yeah. just trying to say like, hey, he, he, this is this this is a better future, you know. And then they also show us like the you know the the nightmare future of 2015, which we are currently living in. <laughs> so, oh yeah. Uh, it, it's just you know it's different versions. Uh, well, of, no, the eighty eighty five is the it's the nightmare eighty five. I think that they show us. It's not the oh yeah. Gets, no, yeah, right. you know what I, mean? I, I got confused. I got confused. Uh, Although yeah. the twenty fifteen is not that great either. <laughs> like I don't know, like you know the cops can just scan your fingerprint and know everything about you. And, you know all this other shit. Oh yeah, uh, and they're still pr- living in the bad. fucking sprawl suburbs. And just yeah. God, imagine what the pollution's like with all the cars that can oh, fly God. now instead of just driving. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah, but no, but you know, and Crispin, uh, you know, and I think he had other issues with 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 the writer and director and other things like that. He is so good in this movie, though. Like, it, he's such a fucking weirdo that like his weirdo energy is just perfect for this role. Like, he's another one I just can't imagine anyone else playing that role. Oh. Yeah, well, they apparently he wasn't acting a lot of the scenes. He was really that nervous. For a lot of it, um, <laughs> really, he had like a nervous breakdown, and they had to like stop filming for the afternoon because he couldn't. He just like couldn't be around people and couldn't he's talk just, for a he's while. He's a weird guy, but I mean, he's you know what? So, That's... Oh, the, if you have never seen it, go watch his appearance on Letterman. Oh God, he's, he's it's got so a weird. Suit, suitcase full of wadded up newspaper for no reason, <laughs> and he's doing like these these like high kicks, like almost kicks, kicks David Letterman in the head. Almost kicks him in the head. He like throws him off the set. Like yeah, it's so, and it's so bad. It's so great. Allegedly, he took a bunch of LSD, and that's why he was acting so fucking <laughs> bonkers. And he's of course, so Dave good, banned him from the show forever. But um, yeah, so yeah, it's it's a real low quality version of it online. That that at least the last time I saw it. Um, but yeah, go watch Crispin fucking tripping, having a bad trip on LSD on David Letterman. Yeah. And, 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 you know, he's, he's of course a total weirdo, which is why if you give him the right role, he's fucking excellent. Like I thought he was great on American gods. He's great. Uh, he was great. His little role in hot tub time machine was so fucking funny, but like his, his weirdo energy is just so perfect for this role. Um, which is just one of the reasons, you know, a lot of people say back to the future two is their favorite. I still kind of put one as my favorite just because of him. I think that the the latter two movies, as as much as I love them, would have been even better if they had him as a prominent character mm. versus just having to kind of recast some guy that looked like him and hide him basically because they couldn't you right. know use him in the movie. Um, I think that probably changed you know the plot of the second movie significantly. Or to to some extent, you know, you couldn't, yeah. you know, back like even in the third movie when he goes back and meets, you know, his ancestor, it's Marty in a wig or, or Marty in like a, a get up versus George. You know, it's just they had to do a lot of little things to get around that. Um, but you know, <laughs> Marty and Drag is great. his own daughter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although one, of, I, I made a little list here of some of my favorite things, and uh, one of them is the. Um, is George McFly, Crispin Glover's uh, no-look milkshake catch. In oh, the, in, I love it. I don't know why. Anytime somebody like like catches something without looking at it in a movie, I get like a little thrill. just takes a giant swig and <laughs> slams it down. So fucking funny. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, a, a, just, there's a ton of things. Um, you know, Fight Club, uh, when they get home from doing one of their actions and like they got all the beers and they're watching it on TV, there's a, there's a no-look... Uh, uh, beer can beer catch, toss. Yeah. yeah. Somebody does. It was like not planned. The guy just did it, and it's like in the movie. And I'm like, yes, fucking no look catch. <laughs> it, it, it's satisfying. It's weirdly satisfying to see. It that. is. It is. Um, yeah. So I, I, yeah, Crispin's great, and you know, it's a shame he didn't end up doing the last two. But uh, 
will always have this performance. Another just iconic fucking performance. For my money, Biff Tannen, top five movie villains of all time. Like him and the iterations of Biff, you know, over the three movies. Like just such an icon. Like easily the best movie bully of all time if we want to narrow it down to that you know that out that aspect versus just villain in general um just so fucking good the young biff the fucking 80s donald trump biff old man biff you know the mad dog like he's so good just the, the physical acting of, of having a to be clay. a huge fucking like i mean martin you know michael j fox you mentioned is five foot four so it's not like you have to have a huge guy but to have that physical presence of being the huge bully, and then also have to play an old man version where you're hunched over and look tiny, mm-hmm. like that's all in the acting. I mean, a little bit of that is like camera framing, obviously too. But to be able to embody all of that, you know, and then even in like the last one, just I mean, it's, it's the mustache and the hat, but also just he <laughs> he his acting so different <laughs> that you don't you don't you forget it's the same guy it, 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 he's so good at like yeah at embodying all of those different you know the different biffs or the different tannins like yeah you you really do forget it's the same guy but he's so fucking good in all of those different iterations um also a little shout out to all the um you know all the the uh the split screen work they had to do for for those those films, yeah, yeah, the second and third one, seamless. Right? It's really seamless, especially the second one. Yeah, I mean the the scene in the garage, he's like, it's make like a tree and leave. <laughs> sound like an idiot. Yeah, <laughs> I do but, love that old old Biff finally learned the fucking joke. It's, it's not make like right. a tree and get out of here. I just would like the the be hilarious to like see the moment where someone finally explained it to him, and he's like. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. Oh man, that scene also contains one of my favorite little like just Biff sight gags where he's walking and he like the, the kids kick a ball to him and he fucking throws it up on the. He's like, "Oh, you want it? Go get it!" And he like throws it up on a roof for no reason. <laughs> yeah, just a fucking dick. <laughs> it's just such a dick. And like, still so, no like I don't, I don't like little kids much either. So I'm just I'm like sort of secretly thrilled by that as well. <laughs> like, ha fuck you, kids. Um. But yeah. but it's funny because it shows you that like this kind of mostly harmless but psychotic bully, it, if given money and power, becomes the most powerful man. You know, becomes Donald Trump. Basically, it's like it, yep. I, I like that aspect yep. of you know the character building and extrapolating out these personalities <laughs> over you know uh, it, it throughout different circumstances. So you know uh, that was that's a great element of it too. Um, well, let's, I want to mention <clears throat> the, the music a little bit. Uh, Alan Silvestri's oh, yeah. score is is really amazing. So and there, there's elements of the score that never get done like this anymore. And one of them is called uh, uh, the motif, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's just like just the 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 couple of major notes in the score, but you just hear just those notes by themselves. And we hear that a bunch of times. It's like the little tinkling sound. That yeah. we hear, like just when there's like a like uh, something uh, 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 yeah. hinted at. No, it's just like the little ding, like that little sound. I, I right? did, yeah, lower, but yeah. Um, that you know, of course, then you have like the grand payoff score, dun, 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 like everyone fucking knows yeah. that. But the, like using that little tiny bit of just just those tiny little twinkly notes like <clears> that <throat> to suggest something builds tension in a way that every time you hear that, you're like. Ooh, here it comes. Like, I don't know what's coming, but it's coming. <laughs> like, he does a great thing in, in the dance scene, too. When they're at the end of Earth Angel, it's so subtle, but like, there's just this great little orchestral swell 
that's like added in by Sylvester after you know at the end of the song but it and it and it, it adds in like the 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 back to the future kind of motif at the end of Earth Angel and it's just a great little right touch you know it, it's just really masterfully scored this movie Every, all well, the also, different little you know having the the song they're playing fade out and like ter- get all like echoey and disappear really kind of like that like have you ever passed out before Mm-hmm. Um, from like a blood loss or whatever, like that, 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 like that's the first thing that starts to happen is everything gets quieter gradually as you're starting to fade out. And like Marty's literally fading out. Like his, you know, the, the one special effect people complain about is like his, his, the you hand. know, see through hand looks, it's like compare that to any other eighties effect. And it's, it's fine. You know, it's, they also it, had to do that really last up. minute. Apparently like that was like one of the, like, cause they, cause again, this movie got, super rushed because they had to reshoot nearly the entire movie uh right. you know after after recasting marty well uh, and most of the effects in this look great they hold up yeah. really well oh, yeah all the car you effects know. look fucking tremendous uh it just you know and lightning you know the i love it you know stuff, yeah. the you know just like the 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 effects around the delorean you know it's mm-hmm. like it's like shooting sparks in front of itself and like hitting a wall and then spreading back around itself which to to design that to look like it's it's like creating sort of a bubble around it, but also breaking through that bubble as it's racing at eighty eight miles an hour just looks really fucking neat. So whoever kind of designed that effect, the, the and that it's know, like the, smoking and cold when it comes through. Like I just love yeah. all the little production elements of like or yeah, the the the, the cable over the street that Marty's got to catch. Mm-hmm. You know, after it, like you know, it's the the cable's left hanging there. You know, and it's like electricity kind of comes down and hits the ground a little bit, and then it kind of goes away, and then like, you know, it's like a moment, like a there's like a beat there, and then the cable slowly catches on fire. Like I love how, you know, it wasn't like, you know, big fire. It was like yeah, totally yeah. silent. Little flames start gr- growing up, like not a big spectacle. It's like because the spectacle's over. This is just the aftermath, and they yeah. they know that like you need <clears throat> a moment to breathe and to like relax and just have Doc look and like be like did it work <laughs> you need that moment before then cutting back to the future you know which is the total opposite of how they cut marty going back in time which was to cut directly from him going you know about to crash into the to the uh the photo booth in the parking lot to crash into the scarecrow it's a smash cut where you like you don't you don't see what he left behind because we're stuck with him but yeah. now it's not a subjective experience where he disappears and we're left with doc kind of looking around and we don't know what happened because we had flame trails behind right. the car, which is or, you know in front of the car, which is awesome. Yeah, that that was the only the only other effect I thought didn't hold up that well was the the first time they show it where it's like their feet are literally standing on top of the fire, not in the <laughs> fire, which is like whatever, it's fine, it's fine. Um, um, oh, one other thing, the the, fucking, yeah. the dog. So they spent so much time building up that that demonstration, right? That you would have to know what they're doing, right? And he's remote controlling the car, which of course they didn't actually remote control. But they, they were so invested in trying to make that first demonstration be convincing and look good that, like, they they had to obviously have a real driver in the car, right? And then when you have the close-up of Einstein in the car, like, the car is not moving. They're just, like, moving lights over it so it looks like it's moving. <laughs> but they had to have – they the Zemeckis was, was adamant they have a, at least one shot of the dog in the driver's seat – as the car was actually moving. So when you see the car actually moving with the dog in it, that's just a fucking stunt driver wearing a dog costume. 
<laughs> I gotta watch that now. I've never, I've never noticed that. Yes, it's so funny. Yes, like they didn't just put a dog in the driver's seat and have like a stunt driver in the passenger side because that would have meant redesigning the entire car to have a steering wheel on the other side, which they didn't have time or probably the budget for. Um, so literally, you only see it for like a couple frames, right? But it's like literally just there's a there's a fucking guy with a shaggy dog helmet <laughs> on his fucking head. <laughs> But it works. It works. Your brain puts it all together the way that your brain puts every, you know, meze scene cut together. Uh, And, you know, again, flawless editing. This this movie knows exactly where to cut. Um, You know, for example, when, you know, they, they don't waste any time in between things, right? Like, there's very little few transitional scenes in this movie. It's just, we're here, then we're here, then we're here. Uh, it's a really like, tight movie. There's look, not, I can't. Yeah, I, not a lot you know, of... the, the 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 you know the dance is over unless you know someone else plays guitar. Smash cut to Marty. Bring <laughs> like they don't waste. Yeah. Any, he doesn't say, "Oh yeah, I know how to play guitar." It just smash cuts from not unless you know anyone playing guitar to Marty strumming the guitar close up of his hand on the strings. You know, and that's like that tells the story perfectly. Everyone understands what happened because we already know he plays guitar. So there's no reason to have him tell the guy. You can just cut to it. You know, and that's how you well, make this a, a tight hour and forty minute movie. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you know, you mentioned the score. Obviously, Th- this this movie uh, is one of the few movies I can think of that has both an iconic score soundtrack and an iconic uh, like in film music soundtrack. The, the uh, you know yep. the, the actual shit that they play. Uh, of course, you know uh, Huey Lewis is uh, and the news is the power of love is just. Maybe the most iconic 80s song. Like, if you just play that, it, it just immediately puts you into the 80s, into this movie. Which he, uh, you know. which he wrote for the movie. He was commissioned to write a several songs. Yeah. And the first one he came up with, they didn't like it. And I don't know if it's ever been released, right? <clears throat> and that wasn't so they, back in time, right? No, no, no. It was another song that no okay. one knows the name of. So they, they, were, they rejected it. So then he wrote Back in Time, which is very specific to the film. Right, and they were like, "We like that. We want you to write another song." So that's when he wrote "Power of Love," which is not specific to the movie. Um, but you might argue that you know the 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 idea of trying to get his parents back together. There's love there, and of course, love for his girlfriend. But th- that song which is also why he's trying to get back. Also, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which of course, like they they you know they don't treat her that well throughout the movie. She's no, like, they kind of yada yada her entire character and arc and everything. But yeah, yeah, but. Uh, if you look at the lyrics of Power of Love, it's it's got a pretty anti-capitalist message. You know, the, the lyrics, you, you know, don't need money, don't need fame, don't, don't need, need fame. no credit card to ride this train. It's strong and it's sudden, it's cruel sometimes, and it might just save your life. That's the power of love. Like, that's a, that's a very anti-Reagan-esque message. Yeah, for sure. Right. And also, I like that he uses bad bad grammar. You know, don't need no credit card to ride this train. Yeah. <laughs> so you do need a credit card to ride this train. Huey uh, Lewis trying to sound more street. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, for sure the only time period where a white guy that sounds like a black guy could talk like that in a song and people would be like, <laughs> right. what the fuck? Um, but oh, but and, I mean, on top of that, yeah. Oh, just as an aside, I was thinking about just because you mentioned the girlfriend. Uh, you know the reason why they had to recast uh, Claudia Wells with Elizabeth Shue in the second film? Wasn't she? Didn't she have like another commitment to a movie or something? No, her mother or had her can- grandmother died. Mother had cancer. Died. Mother yeah. had cancer, so she couldn't couldn't do the time commitment for it. But I just I think it's like cause, because there were you know problems with Crispin Glover, people just assumed there were problems with uh, you know Claudia Wells as well, yeah, and that she, wasn't the case at all. She wanted to do the role, control. Uh, but you know, parents going through cancer that's got to 
take you know prior to over. I everything. mean, also, I don't know if they rewrote it after they recast, but uh, she didn't really miss much because they literally, you know, they knock her out five minutes into twenty. You know, they 10 just minutes carry around her body. You know, I don't know what the <laughs> fuck they needed Elizabeth Shue for for that. For she sure, was for mildly sure. famous at the time, but it, you um, should sometime go watch the shot by shot comparison. Girls. Yeah. Uh, that was not Elizabeth Shue, but that's okay. Uh, watch the shot by shot um, reshoot of the of that scene where um, where uh, you know they're looking at the the truck in the garage, and Doc comes back and he's got Mister Fusion because they did an amazing job of matching that uh, almost line for line, movement by movement, being the exact same scene. So much so that none of us fucking noticed. I didn't notice that. I never noticed that until I started looking up things online. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a different woman. Like, wait, did they yeah. reshoot the whole no, scene? Elizabeth Berkeley, by the way. I confused the two blonde Elizabeth. Yeah, from Saved by the Bell. Yep. You know, it's yep. funny because I just watched uh, Showgirls again the other night. <laughs> Why? It's so bad. No, it's, it's, it's fucking uh, satire. It's the same guy that did Starship Troopers, and it's satire on that same level. I haven't seen it in a long time, so maybe. I don't know. I they didn't know how really to sell it as satire, so they marketed yeah. it as this just really pulpy NC-17 movie. The way that, like, I mean, you watch Starship Troopers, and it's blatant satire mocking U.S. imperialism. I mean, the, the costumes, they're literally walking around in, like, Nazi SS uniforms mm-hmm. in Starship yep. Troopers. But so many people yeah. love that. I mean, you look how many people, uh, how many right-wing people misuse that. Um, you know, we're doing our part meme not realizing like they're they're mocking US imperialism. And you know, and then, then they, they sort of admit later on that like, you know, these bugs were only defending themselves from from the humans encroaching on their planets. You know, like, oh, yeah. we've been rooting for the bad guy the whole time, right? which is like that's 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 America in a nutshell. Um but yeah, go back and watch Showgirls because there's there's so much to it that's very subtle but is uh you know very it's it's a very class conscious film right because it's about all mm-hmm. these young uh dancers and performers who are kind of like just chewed up through this ringer of Vegas as being this unstoppable money making machine that doesn't care about who it destroys right and interesting yeah it's also it really a really really funny movie there's some hilarious lines in that uh <coughs> pardon me um but yeah, check it out. It's 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 worth a second viewing. I know a lot of people. It's like a like a cult classic to them. Um, I actually was playing a, a, a drinking game. I had to come up with drinking game rules for it. That's why I was watching it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's good. So um, anyway, back to Back to but, the Future. Yeah. So you know, obviously the power of love, but but of course all the classic fifties like music that they bring into it too. Uh, Earth Angel, you know, uh, just tremendous. Uh, you know, for whatever reason, I just loved the like the the two songs that the the Marvin Berry and the Starlighters play that and Johnny Be Good. Uh, that's There's the other probably one. the other one. That well, they play Night Train, yeah, which is the instrumental classic. one, which is just like the, with the saxophone. Which I think it's a '30s song. I th- at Night it's, Train. The version they do is so fucking sleazy. It's like it's an instrumental, but I feel like it should have like a like an adult you know warning on it because we well, know that song's in the shining also it's just fucking nuts like that's one of the songs it? they play yeah, in the in the in the gold room is like in the the flashback to the 30s or the 20s i think yeah yeah uh it's just a classic you know saxophone kind of like uh, you know i don't know jazz sort of writ. like it's 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 really good before you could have explicit lyrics you just had to have like this the sleaziest saxophone riff impossible that implied sex <laughs> right yeah exactly exactly um 
So yeah, that was that was great. And then of course Johnny Be Good, the iconic fucking guitar and singing, but not that it was actually uh Michael J. Fox singing, but uh I, that that inspired so many people I think to pick up a guitar, including me. I think that was one of the first times I really was like wow, this is like the coolest thing on the planet. Like, you know, the, what he's doing right now is the coolest fucking thing. I need to learn how you to just, do that. You needed a, a white guy to interpret for you in order to, to, to get interested. An early moment of like, oh, that's a really cool, you know, iconic thing. Like, because I think I was actually really into rap at the time when I was younger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was one of the first kind of rock song, not songs, but like, you know, it was one of the first times I was like, oh, that's really cool. I, I, I should learn how to do that. I think actually uh, John Mayer also said that that's the reason he learned guitar is mm. seeing that movie when he was a kid. <laughs> well, I'm sure Which... I didn't know who Chuck Berry was when I was five years old. So no, to, no, to me, sure. I you know knew it was an old rock and roll song. I probably didn't know that it was an existing song. You know, I didn't. I you know, like I was five, so I was like, oh, Michael Jackson, he's good. Uh, one of the other little music details I love is, you know, when. Uh, <laughs> What was it? Um, when when George McFly says, um, you know, nobody on this planet's going to get me to ask her out, Lorraine, right? And of course, Marty thinks nobody on this planet. <laughs> then he shows up <laughs> as Darth Vader, uh, and he blasts the Van Halen in his over over the headphones. And of course, George thinks he's from another planet. He's using Marty's using the uh, radiation suit to you know once again trick uh, you know dumb people from the fifties who read too many UFO comic books that he's actually an alien to scare him into doing it, and then that also motivates him to, to want to try this plan. Um, people were like, was that really Van Halen? Because on the tape he puts in, it says Van Halen. But what well, says it, Edward Van Halen on the tape. It says Edward Van Halen because they couldn't yeah. get the rights, you know, even though they had actually Eddie Van Halen to just, like, do some squiggly guitar shit for them for real uh, that he plays. They couldn't use the name Van Halen because didn't, he didn't have the rights to that name. Uh, so that's, that's they, he, they were like, you can use your full name, but we can't say Eddie Van Halen or just Van Halen, so that's why it says Edward Van Halen on that cassette and you just tape. Records some like <laughs> generic, like awesome riffing, yeah. Right, right. But I mean, the idea that Marty McFly would have a cassette tape that said Edward Van Halen is ridiculous on its own, right? But yeah. it's like another detail that I never fucking noticed before. That's right? funny. Yeah. 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 So I mean, you know, just iconic shit, um, up and down that soundtrack. Uh, just everything about this movie is just so. So culturally and pop culturally uh, relevant today, you know, it still has a massive following 35 years later. There's multiple documentaries that I've seen about it. You know, there's documentaries about restoring the, the DeLorean. There's uh, just a documentary about making the film. Um, I think something like 6,000, 6,500 of the 9,000 DeLoreans ever produced are still on the road just and all held by, you know, collectors who loved uh this movie and are you know they have like fucking fan conventions where they all get together with their delore like it's just the like everything around this movie is just kind of insane how much it stood the test of time but i think that speaks to its quality uh you know you don't see that for almost any other film or film series no and and this is one another little fact i think is funny is that uh, crispin glover claims to have only seen the film once shortly after its release (laughs) By contrast, Christopher show. Lloyd, Christopher Lloyd has stated that anytime he sees Back to the Future on TV while channel surfing, he'll stop and watch it. <laughs> so, <laughs> just, uh, again, I love Christopher uh, Lloyd, um, who you know I, I'm a big Star Trek fan, and this was made. 
uh, just after Christopher Lloyd was an incredibly good villain as a Klingon in Star Trek uh, Three: Search for Spock, one of the one of the movies people don't like that much for some reason that I I like a lot. I still like that one a lot um, because Chris. I'm sorry, because Christopher Lloyd. You know, you wouldn't think it, but just before he played this lovable, crazy doctor, played this just unmercifully evil villain in in a sci-fi <laughs> movie just like a year prior to this. So well, then, anyway, then in '88 he plays Judge Doom and Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which is another oh god, god. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> terrifying fucking. <clears throat> Oh god, the scene where he takes the glasses off and the voice gets like that's it terrified me as a child. <laughs> that is just... yeah, no kidding. It's, it's it's again, we someday we're going to have to review Roger Rabbit because if you it's like really me good. are a big fan of public transportation and hate freeways and highways and cities, the whole plot <laughs> of that movie is, that. <laughs> is is about like class politics and you know the car companies buying up the trolley to put it out of business on purpose, and like, like which is exactly what happened. Neighborhood. Yeah, which is exactly what happened. You see, like this, this all the poor working people are taking the trolley everywhere, taking public transit, and they're all losing their jobs. The trolley's being bought up to be poli- deliberately put under, and then it's gonna, like, you know, it's like a freeway. What the hell's a freeway? Um, you know, and we see that 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 freeway is gonna be at, at the expense of destroying Toontown, of course. Yeah, you know, in real life, it was at the expense of destroying all the black neighborhoods, right? <laughs> um, so yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. So, um, is there any other trivia you wanted to hit before we? Uh, let's see. Oh, uh, there was a sticker on the back of Doc's uh, truck that read "One nuclear bomb can ruin your whole day," which I thought <laughs> that was funny. That's great. I, I don't even know if it's visible in the movie, unless you'd like, you know, have like the 4K version, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Oh, the film was banned in China for a while because the notion of time travel was quote disrespectful to history, <laughs> which is just such like a like perfectly a great... like Chinese idea that like you know that their 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 history of their communist revolution is so important to maintaining control that like that that is uh, like you know you know you don't, you don't time travel uh, the, that ban on the movie has since been lifted. Um, yeah, that's good. <clears throat> yeah, that's funny though. Well, they I mean you know they. they Go through phases. Um, there are actually only thirty-two visual effects shots in the entire film, which oh, is wow. yeah. not that not that that's, many if you think about it's it. It's really not um, a lot at all. Yeah, no. Uh, I mean, the total budget for the film was only nineteen million dollars, which in nineteen eighty-five money is probably like what three times that what it would be now. Yeah, 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 something. But still, that's not you know insane for for all the shit that there is no. in that movie. No. And again, it's it's one of these things where you know, like the the, the like the line from the song Lightning Never Strikes Twice, which of course is very tongue in cheek because we know that in real life lightning does strike twice all the time, especially tops of skyscrapers. But of course it's a reference to the fact that like in this movie they know exactly when lightning is going to strike, <laughs> right? <laughs> and they're taking advantage of that fact. So even though the lightning's not actually striking twice, it's there. It's striking once, but it's you know essentially in two timelines. Oh, the other weird thing is that you know when they're sitting there and they're about to make out on the bus bench, and the lady comes up and like shakes the can in their face, and she's like, yeah, "Save yeah. the clock tower." I always thought that she was fundraising to get the clock tower fixed, but if you listen to what she actually says, she's not. She's saying the mayor wants to get she it fixed. She wants to not fix it, yeah. Right. They're raising money to keep the clock tower broken as a historical <laughs> preservation. And I never caught that. I was like, oh, that's uh, weird. 
that's really bizarre. Like, because historic <laughs> preservationists usually want to restore things to the way they originally were, which would mean, you know, fixing it. <laughs> Not yeah, so really, yeah, really strange um, kind of flip take on on what I had always assumed was was uh, the difference there. And let's see what else. I don't think I have too much else here. Um, other than just again, like sort of the, the the idea, you know, the the idea of of going back in time and fixing our mistakes, I think is is a maybe a uniquely American concept, you know, like that that you know we we haven't really reconciled or we're, we're currently right now reconciling with, I think maybe for the first time, um, really looking at five hundred years of colonialism and white supremacy. You know, we're tearing down all these statues of Columbus and all these Confederate statues and, you know, really looking at, like, who the police are, right? And I think for the first time, we're, we're sort of culturally wishing we could really fix some of those mistakes. Now, yeah. this movie is kind of more like, hey, let, this was an accident in the first place, I, but the, the mistakes are kind of more, like, individual in nature, but they are universal, universally... I think uh, resonant because we all have moments in our life we wish we'd go back and fix, right? That we all kind of wish like our circumstances could have been better, you know, where we came from could have been better, or we we kind of long for a better life. Whatever our station is, we're just kind of ingrained in that. So even though like we're we're all a bunch of commies over here on this podcast, like we've still grown up in a society that tells us like we deserve, like individually we deserve better. You know, and sometimes it's if we work harder, but usually we know the reality is like you only get better things by, you know, either through exploiting someone else's labor or being lucky and being born into a family of millionaires, right? Yeah. But and then we all kind of wish like that could be our life to an extent, even if we, you know, know it's never going to happen. We all kind of pine for something better, right? Um, so that's how even you know even a movie that, that is steeped with ideas of Reaganism. Uh, we all still look and look at it and come away being like, yeah, I totally get that character. I get this story. It, this is this. We all wish we could get you a know, fly around in a fucking yeah. time machine, a flying DeLorean, a flying car, even if we, we think that's probably terrible for the environment. <laughs> is We're still like, that'd be really fucking cool if I had one, right? <laughs> well, it was nuclear. It was powered by plutonium. So, I mean, it's, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I not, totally it's not would... giving off fossil fuels at least. No, I, I, right, but I, I would like we all, we all think like, well, I would use it ethically, right? Like I wouldn't fuck <laughs> yeah, up the right. timeline. <laughs> I, I would only use it I to would kill just make Hitler. things better for me, and then yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. None of us but should no, have those great. powers. None of us. Yeah, none no, of us. nobody should have those powers. <laughs> uh, just excellent fucking movie. Uh, I can't wait to review the other two. We'll definitely do those at some point. Uh, they, you know, they each I think will also have their own show. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'll you know, I, I what would you give this out of uh, five uh, hammer and sickles? Five out of five hammer and sickles, absolutely. Yeah. Yep, we've we've easy, been reviewing the classics, five out of five. so it's it's uh, it's it's not hard to give it what it what it's due. Um, and we'll we'll probably continue to come back and refer to this film as we review other modern films. We'll keep being like, eh, back to the future. But uh, yeah, no, this is this is good. Um, you know, I'm hoping that uh, next week we can get it work in a one of our political podcast shows. So if you like this, check that out. Our our politics are uh, pretty well researched and founded. So if you like what you hear here, check that out as well. Yeah, and that's uh, you of course can find the political show at SoundCloud.com/slash MoveLeft. 
Um, if you want to uh, support the show, you can rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. That helps us out in the ratings. Um, Facebook, we're at facebook.com slash moveleftidiots. Uh, we have uh, Patreon at patreon.com slash moveleft. Uh, merch available at tinyurl.com slash moveleftmerch. I am on Twitter at move underscore left. And I am on Twitter at a bike slutty. Yeah, and we'll see you next time. Some